Welcome to No Wrong Answers Extra Credit. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. Few education writers, with the possible exception of Jonathan Kozel, are more widely respected and more widely read than Mike Rose. In a career that's spanned more than 35 years, Rose has produced 11 books on education and learning, ranging in topic from effective literacy strategies to the cognitive complexity of blue-collar work. His most well-known book, possibly, is the semi-autobiographical Lives on the Boundary, written in 1989. It's now generally considered a classic of the field, often read in education schools and teacher prep programs. The book details different ways to reach so-called problem students, while at the same time mining the deep vein of Rose's own personal experiences growing up in a working-class household. Mike Rose was born in Pennsylvania, the son of Italian immigrants, and grew up in Los Angeles. He's said one of the most important things to happen to him while growing up was being moved out of his high school's vocational track and into its college prep track. In the college prep track, he had a teacher who advised him on applying to college. Rose, who now teaches at UCLA, has tended to focus his writing on class divisions he experienced as a student and that still often plague our education system. He's written passionately about vocational education, what's now termed career and technical education, and how it can and should be integrated into a more well-rounded education that also includes STEM learning and instruction in subjects like classic literature. He says Votech subjects like auto mechanics and shop class are often looked at with snobbery and elitism and are undervalued by the education system as a whole. Rose has been revisiting these themes on his blog in the wake of the election of Donald Trump as president. He's not a fan of Trump. He makes no bones about his disappointment in the election results. Trump swept the White House with the support of millions of white working class voters like people Rose says he grew up with. I wanted to speak to Rose about how his career's focus, his lifelong passion for looking at issues of class and education, now seem more relevant than ever. I started by asking him about a recent piece he wrote published on the Washington Post website that argued why Trump being in the White House should worry teachers. And it's not necessarily for the reasons you may be thinking. Oh, Mike Rose, thank you for joining us on No Wrong Answers Extra Credit. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thanks, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Well, many public school teachers and education advocates, including many on this podcast, have been critical of President Trump for a lot of things, uh, most notably his appointment of Betsy DeVos as education education secretary and his recently unveiled education budget that makes deep cuts to a variety of programs, zeroes out several programs as well. But you make a different case in a blog post that you recently published, which was republished on the Washington Post website. You say it's not just education policy that's threatened by the Trump administration, but the meaning of education itself. What did you mean by that? Yeah, well, what what interests me about about President Trump as an educator, looking at him as a teacher, is, as you say, not only the troublesome budget cuts and some of the appointments, but his very behavior and the way that he frames problems and the way that he uh, addresses issues run contrary to everything that we as educators try to do. I mean, from elementary school through the graduate seminar. And this kind of came together for me, Kyle, when I was reading uh, the columnist George Will, the conservative columnist who also has a a, a regular feature in the Post, in the Washington Post. And he made the really interesting point. He said that, you know, the problem isn't so much that Donald Trump doesn't know something, because 
you know, none of us know everything and we all have to find things out. And he said, and the problem is also not that he does not know that he does not know. The dangerous thing is that he does not know what it is to know something. And that floored me, Kyle. That really got me to thinking. If you think about the core of education, we're in the business of trying to help young people think and think better and think more considerately and think more comprehensively. And especially in this age when we're just being bombarded with so much information, we try very hard to help young people sort through information and make decisions about what's legitimate and not legitimate. And it seems to me that every day we, we see all of these principles violated by our president. Are there particular instances that you can recall of, uh, of either uh, watching or, or reading about something uh, done in the Trump administration by President Trump that, ha- that has um, stuck out to you or, or bothered you particularly as an educator in this frame of, of talking about uh, uh, knowing about thinking? Yeah. I, I, so I, I think we get examples all all the time. I mean, for, for, first of all, the the level of um, gosh, I don't want what you might call it, but the level of um, kind of false assurance the, that he has about knowing things and knowing everything. I mean, how many different times, both on the campaign trail. And while he's been in office, does he say things like, I know more about this than anybody does. I know more about ISIS than the generals know. I know more about taxes than anybody. I don't need daily intelligence briefings because I'm a smart guy. So, so first of all, those kinds of things are troubling because, you know, my Lord, I can't imagine the, 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 the stuff that hits a president's office every day that requires a deep amount of thought and a lot of consultation. Do you think there are actual negative impacts on students, um, kids, um, from these particular um, examples that you're citing? You know, I mean, it's besides, I mean, bigger picture issues about, um, you know, the president being in control of a lot of policy and international affairs. But beyond Mm -hmm. that, just like the example he's setting, is there an actual Mm -hmm. negative impact uh, for students or kids? That's a really good question. You know, it's hard for me to say without going around classroom to classroom and really trying to gauge this, but my guess is that several things that we see pretty consistently are certainly not healthy. So one thing I think that is not a positive thing for students to see is this continual um, bragging about knowing more than anybody else about something and being so smart that you don't need to be briefed or to read long documents or anything like that. That's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is if if for those students who are old enough or interested enough to be following politics and, you know, being clued in to um, the news, I think that some of what they hear and see in terms of his explanations for policy decisions um, are a little more than sound bites. So again, getting back to the point we were making earlier, if the purpose of education is to help students become thoughtful and to explore sources and make judgments about what you know and figure out ways to find out what you don't know and to examine your own thinking, 
they're not seeing examples of any of this coming out of the White House. Do you, I kind of wanted to get into some things you've written about a lot in your career and and themes that have come up in your work repeatedly, um, having grown up in a working class family and and moved on to academia. Uh, Do you interpret Donald Trump's election in any way as a failure of the American education system? Boy, I I hear people say that all the time. Um, You know, those are the kinds of sweeping judgments that I'm just not comfortable making. Kyle, you know, uh, the people voted for Donald Trump for dozens upon dozens upon dozens of reasons. Well, first of all, the various voters that voted for him each had their own set of reasons, and those don't necessarily all overlap. So there's that. But also within any person, the reasons that that Joe or Miriam vote for somebody that are multifold. You know, they're, the person appeals to their sense of what the economy should be and has and appeals on certain social issues and maybe just has a personality that appeals to them. I mean, there's many, many things that go on to, to go into why someone votes for somebody. So I would just find it hard to make any kind of general judgment about what the American educational system did or didn't do that led to the election of Donald Trump, because the reasons that folks voted for him are so varied. Uh, you were born in Pennsylvania, grew up in Los Angeles. You've talked already in this interview and repeatedly throughout your, your career about um, you know, the pain, really, and, and embarrassment and doubt that often come when someone from a working class background enters a school or university setting and tries to gain a level of status that... Um, <laughs> That is often not automatically given to them because of their class background. Yeah. Um, did you see those themes playing out in the election? And and do you think? And I just wonder what are you, what are your reflections about what you've been yeah. writing about for your whole career? Yeah. Uh, now that those issues played such a central role um, in the election. Gosh, it's it's so interesting that you ask me that. Um, I think that a lot of folks who come from the kind of background I come from have felt for a long time uh, condescended to. Um, and their, uh, their intelligence, their skills, all of that sort of thing, looked down upon. I mean, that can happen in school. Um, I think it can happen just in, happens in the, just in the general culture. I mean, if you remember a while back when, especially when high tech was really exploding, um, People were using metaphors like this in opinion pieces and whatnot, that that the work of the old economy, in other words, manufacturing and service industry and all that, that the work of the old economy is neck-down work, as opposed to the work of the new economy, you know, uh, high-tech and finance and all that, as being neck-up work. I mean, it's that kind of talk that is so demeaning and, by the way, inaccurate, um, I think that all of that kind of thing did play into this election and did played into other elections. I mean, Sarah Palin's rhetorical genius was that she was able to really pull on those strings, those strings of class resentment and a sense that, um, you know, that college-educated folks and East Coast elites and all that who were really looking down on lots of people in the 
the heartland and and in the you know the blue collar and service professions i think that perception is not inaccurate and i do agree with you i think it was it played its role in this election and in other elections so i guess i wonder what then do you see as the 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 responsibility of educators now in this environment to try to square those two halves uh, that yeah. seem to be battling with each other, this this kind of um, uh, resurgent resentment that pe- that people from the working class have felt for years, as you put it, um, butting up against the, this this notion of of elite and and um, and privileged uh, knowledge and wealth. Yeah, I'll tell you what breaks my heart about it is that it is so ultimately and finally unnecessary. I mean, the very split between the, just to take an example, the very split between the academic and the vocational curriculum that occurred in the American Comprehensive High School in the early uh, part of the 20th century, I think turned out to be just a massive mistake. for many, many reasons, I think, for what it did to the curriculum and what it did to, um, and the effect that it had on a whole lot of students, but also for these kinds of cultural and political reasons that we're talking about. I, I, and this may sound naive, Kyle, but at heart, there is absolutely no reason why, you know, reading poetry or something should be the uh, the, the domain of folks who are in who are college-educated or whatnot, um, just in the same way that there should be no reason why the appreciation of a, of a really, of a well-thought-out bit of problem-solving with mechanics or circuitry or plumbing shouldn't be admired by somebody with a Ph.D. I mean, these are all, these are all problems of our own making. My Uncle Frank rest his soul, who was a machinist and a welder for the Pennsylvania Railroad when it still existed. Um, he did graduate from high school, but but never went beyond that. Uh, so this was, you know, a union guy and, uh, and a working guy, blue-collar worker. And he would read Longfellow. You know, he would quote. <laughs> he would quote 19th century American poets in the letters that he would write out to California to my mother. Uh, and to me, um, you know, there's just again at heart there's th- these these separations and and tensions just don't have to be there, and unfortunately they are. How we reverse them at this stage, I'm honestly not sure. But I think starting in school is is one place where we start. So to get back to that original phrase, the educational hedge against authoritarianism. I mean, you're saying it's like. Uh, Voked can be that within the context of of an education system that not only allows explorations in vocational education but also uh, other areas as well, so that that students are are trained to be workers and thinkers. I, I guess if that's yeah, because because there shouldn't we shouldn't even have to say and in there, you know that that a worker is a thinker. I mean a a. a you know, again, a machinist, an electrician, a, uh, 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 people in service industries, people in healthcare, um, in mid-level technical jobs, they are thinkers. They have to be thinkers, and and those 
that, that kind of work automatically has a rich intellectual base if it's not stripped away. And I, I, I guess it gets me back to that sentence that you were quoting. It seems to me that the challenge that faces vocational educators today, or career and technical education as they call it now, the challenge that they face is how do you create a strong and rich and robust career and technical education program that also educates people in all the other kinds of things they knew they need to know to live their life today? How do you work in economics? How do you work in mathematics? How do you work in political science? How do you work in some psychology and sociology so that people come out of these programs really equipped to deal with the world that we're facing today? They're not just worker bees. Uh, final question, I think, wrapping up this conversation, what do you see as the role of a K-12 public school teacher in uh, Donald Trump's America? Wow, that's a huge question. I think getting back to that um, opinion piece of mind that, that we that we opened up with, um, I think it's for teachers to do what best the best teachers have always done, whether it's you know in the primary grades all the way through graduate school, and that is to continue to focus on you know teaching students how to work. Uh, how to work through things and think about things and use their minds and find information and make judgments about it and uh, and, and all of those things that have always been at the heart of education and also I guess in these in these times when everything is so contentious, trying to get students to see how they can work together around things and talk things through and engage in common problems. One of the truest ways that we have of helping people with very different political or social views at least come to a kind of working understanding of each other. One of the most powerful ways we have is having them work on common projects. And there are so many common projects that you can work on within the schoolhouse. So I think that the, the role of teacher in Donald Trump's America is the role that, that a teacher has always had, but maybe amped up a bit given the political climate, and given the example that comes from the White House. Well, Mike Rose, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Kyle. It's been my pleasure as well. That was this edition of No Wrong Answers Extra Credit. To download this and past episodes of No Wrong Answers, go to iTunes and search for No Wrong Answers by Fountain City Frequency. We have full episodes drop every Wednesday and extra credits on most Thursdays. Also, you can join the conversation at our Facebook page or find us on Twitter. Just look for the No Wrong Answers podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.